0: If you turn with me to Genesis chapter 6, I'm going to read from verses 5 to 22, Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 to 22, and I'm going to read a portion of chapter 7, verses 17 and 18 as well. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he had made plans on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals and creatures that move along the ground, and birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the account of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Jepheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 450 feet long. 75 feet wide and 45 feet high. Make a roof for it and finish the ark to within 18 inches of the top. Put a door in the side of the ark and make lower, middle, and upper decks. I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens. Every creature that has a breath of life in it. Everything on earth will perish. But I will establish my covenant with you and you will enter the ark. You and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. You are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Two of every kind of bird, of every kind of animal, and of every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. You are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and store it away as food for you and for them. Noah did everything just as God commanded him. Now if you turn with me to chapter 17. For 40 days, the flood kept coming on the earth, and as the waters increased, they lifted the ark high above the earth. The waters rose and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. This is God's word. We've been saying over the last several weeks that the Bible is not a collection of uh, disparate stories that tell morals on how to live a, a good life, but rather it's one story about what's wrong with the world, what God is doing in the world and and how the story this incredible story is going to end and our our application is really to plug our personal story into this great story of the gospel the greatest story of redemption now this is a passage about judgment on a cloudy day on a cloudy rainy day it's fitting it's the idea of The idea of judgment is oftentimes upsetting to people. It seems incredibly outdated or irrelevant in our culture, in our postmodern culture today. Why can't God just forgive everybody and call it a day? Why can't he just love everybody? We always ask. And I want to submit to you that that would pose even greater problems for us if that were the case. So there are three things that we're going to look at today to help us understand the meaning of judgment. The pain of God, the evil of man, and the cure. God's solution. The pain of God, the evil of man, and God's cure. First, the pain of God. It's a short point. Here lies the reason for judgment. And, uh, you know, we, we think about um, if it hurts you to to really deal with judgment, this concept of judgment, there's nothing necessarily wrong with your heart because we all struggle with judgment. In fact, your recoil, your distaste of the concept of God's judgment is nothing compared to God's own struggle with judgment. Look at verses five to six in this passage. I'm just gonna read verses five to six. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. I'm going to skip over to verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight. It was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. God struggles. God saw that every inclination of man's heart was only evil all the time. Verse 6, his heart was filled with pain, it said, and this makes judgment necessary. He says, because of this reason, I'm grieved, I'm saddened, I'm broken by this, it makes judgment necessary. If you're upset by the wrongs done against you, God is even more upset. He's filled with pain, he says. The word pain here, it's not just, you know, I'm hurt. You know, I'm just saddened by this. I'm looking at what's going on and I'm just really sad. It's actually a feeling of deep, unfulfilled longing, literally, in the Hebrew. Deep, unfulfilled longing. A deep sense of dissatisfaction. It's almost akin, often referred to in the Bibles, when a spouse leaves you. That's the feeling that God is experiencing. When you are pained, when you are suffering because of violence or wrongdoing against you, when you feel betrayed, something that you have not conceived, you feel pain. And that pain, at that moment, you are connecting with God because God feels pain. God is experiencing deep pain. God, why why is that the case? And we see that, you know, because this is nothing compared to how God feels for us. What God has chosen to do since the creation of the world, he had bound up his life with us. He chose to do that. He didn't need man. He didn't need people, according to Scripture. He chose to bind his life, bind his heart with our lives. And you know how we responded? We rejected him. We said, we don't want you. We don't need you. Get out of our lives. We don't trust you. That's how we responded. He could have ended us right there. He could have wiped us out right there. But instead, he decided to suffer for us. Like the pain of a parent looking at a wayward child, when you look at your children, and, and sometimes they suffer consequences of them kind of wandering away from you, whether they're older or younger, and the pain of that parent feeling for that child so much greater. How much greater does God experience pain for his people? You're reminded of Jesus when he looks at Lazarus and he's weeping. But God is grieving for our suffering. This shatter, sh- our view of God, It should shatter our our worldview of how we look at God and how God looks at us. You know, when God saw Adam and Eve do what they actually did, he knew at that moment he had chosen to suffer. So why did he let it go on? Why did he choose to suffer? And whenever you think of this, you're thinking of evil and, and suffering from your vantage point. You know, um, but we say, you know, there, there must be no good reason for why we're suffering like this. But God, he must know more than this. Why does he allow these things to happen? I mean, if he knew everything that was going to happen from Adam and Eve all the way down to Christ on the cross, and yet he chose to do that, he must know more. He must know more to the story. So is it wise to reject God because we don't know all the answers? We don't know all the answers. Is it really good logic to say, you know, because I can't think of a good reason for this suffering, no good reason exists. Is that really good logic? That's flawed. God himself, this text shows that he let history go on, even though it was going to cost him. He let it go on because it must be worth it. He knows the story. He knows how it's going to end. He knows what he's doing there. He could have stopped it, but he didn't stop it. So he wasn't just dealing with our suffering. He was dealing with his own suffering. His own pain. That's God's pain. Second, it's our evil. The evil of man. Verse 7, verse 13, it says that it's our violence. God is going to wipe them off the earth. Now this is incredibly upsetting to people. The idea of judgment, it means you know that, that, that God can actually be unhappy with the choices that I make on a daily basis. He actually responds to the choices that we make every day. Now if you believe in divine judgment or vengeance, that's going to create problems for your mind. It's going to create problems for your heart. But I'm telling you right now, um, if you don't believe in judgment, in vengeance, there's an even bigger problem And the thing that creates the problem is not just evil on a philosophical level. It's actually very practical. It's evil on a practical level. So today, if you don't believe in judgment, if you don't like believing in judgment, if you don't like thinking that God actually will one day come back and account, call us to account for everything that we've done, because that feels like such a primitive thought, then you're going to have huge, huge problems, tremendous problems with evil in your life. And it's going to be insurmountable. I'm telling you, it's going to be insurmountable three quick reasons one evil's natural so there's no defense against it starting from microbial organisms you have bigger always conquering the weaker that's how it starts all the way on up look at the animals you know look at competition capitalism even communism it doesn't matter whether you're what is what is what is capitalism man against man right what is communism class against class it's another version of man against man so it doesn't matter if you're from Eastern or Western, European or not, or American. It doesn't matter. Evil is natural. The concept of people wanting to dominate the other, the next person, has been is a natural response to how we live in the world. And so Nietzsche was right, that if there is no God, then, then even your outrage against the immoral things that are going on the world, in the world is just a power play you have no right to have outrage against, uh, from a moral standpoint against the things, the injustices of the world. That was Nietzsche. If there's no God, there's no reason. Why? Because it's natural, absolutely natural. Second, evil is subterranean. It's underground, it's underneath, it's of the heart. It goes very, very deep. It's not just physically attacking one another. Every week, along with just physical violence that takes place, things that we can account for from, a, from the police department or the fire department, for instance, Beyond that, reputations are being tarnished every day. Beyond that, there are things going on in the home that we don't, we're not aware of. There is emotional and verbal abuse. There are things going on, there are injustices that are taking place in the world that we cannot account for. And it's natural because it goes deep. It goes deeper than what's apparent or physical. Self-images, hopes, dreams, relationships, character every day are being assassinated. And uh, it's one of the major reasons why I personally didn't want to go into ministry. Because if you think about the two people who are trashed every day in the world, it is the president of the United States and it is the pastor. And yet, that's natural. That is a natural response to inner human condition. So it's very practical. You know, think about it. When you are wronged, somebody does something wrong to you and you're angry, you're, you're often, it, it, it's bitter, you know, you can taste the bitterness, and it, and it poisons you, you're poisoned by that, there are several ways that we respond, you're either going to withdraw from people completely as a way of punishing them, you're going to retaliate against people, that's a way of punishing them, you're going into the natural course of violence and evil that has been pretty much set in stone in the human condition, that is very practical. It is very natural. So why can't God just forgive us? Why can't he just call, say, you know what, I'm just going to let it go? And we're saying that we can. you can't. If you, if you can just forgive, think about it. If you can just forgive somebody with a simple act of the will, think about you when you are wronged. If you can just forgive with a simple act of the will, then you haven't been truly hurt. You haven't been truly wronged. You know, you haven't been truly violated your space or your character or your person. If you can just let it go, then, you know, you've never really truly been violated in life. Because when you are wronged, you're either going to make somebody else pay or you're going to absorb the pain to truly forgive them. But either way, somebody's got to pay the price. Somebody pays the price for forgiveness. Because violence is necessary. Violence is, I mean, is, is absolutely natural. The last last reason is because evil is endless. It's never going to end. If you think about it, if you've actually experienced violence, you're going to want to pick up the sword and retaliate or withdraw. That evil will perpetuate itself. It will be cyclical. It will happen for all time. And if there is no God, what we're saying is there is no end. So if you don't believe in divine judgment, if you don't believe in God's vengeance, it will create insurmountable problems for you more than if you do believe in it. So believe in it. The Bible talks about it. Take a look at it. Think about it. As a result, judgment is absolutely necessary because of man's evil. Otherwise, we're going to have much, much bigger problems with evil. Now, lastly, we're already at the last point. Fortunately, the last point is going to take like half an hour, okay? Um, I'm kidding. The cure for God's pain. The cure for God's pain, the cure for the evil of man. How can God be both judge and lover? How can God be a God of truth and love? How can God be a God of suffering and justice? And his answer, the flood. That's his answer. Now, there is an infinitely holy and yet loving God, and yet his solution is the flood. The flood was not the solution. It was actually, it sets the... You know, a pattern. It sets this course. It sets a stage for the pattern of the solution that God's going to bring about. It wasn't just a judgment. A lot of times we look at the flood as just judgment waters. It wasn't just a judgment. It was a pattern for the way God will bring about judgment. Through the flood, there's going to be judgment and salvation. There's going to be truth and a demonstration of love. There's going to be suffering, and yet there's going to be justice. There's going to be judgment, and yet God's overall love for his people. We're going to see this. And we're going to read just briefly. Let's take a look at verses 8 to 10. I just want to recount verses 8 to 10. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the account of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And, you know, you look at that and you go into verses 14 to 21. God, said, God calls Noah out and he basically gives him direction for the ark. For this thing that's going to, uh, when the judgment waters come, That so he, he, his family would be redeemed. God had favor on Noah. God places them in the ark. He literally provides from the ark. You got to think about the amazing uh, quality of which what's going on here. Verse, let's, let's skip over to verse 22. "Noah did everything. He did everything just as God commanded him. Noah obeyed. And in Hebrews chapter 11, verse seven, Hebrews is an incredible commentary of the Old Testament. And uh, verse seven helps to explain that Noah was warned of things not yet seen. It says that Noah was warned of things not yet seen, and yet he obeyed. He believed God. That's what Hebrews uh, 11 verse 7 says. In other words, he didn't see the storm. He didn't see the judgment. But in holy fear, it said, he built the ark. In holy fear, he believed God. That's what it means to have holy fear. He actually believed. He trusted God. He put his emotional and physical and monetary weight on what God had said. He obeyed. In other words, the gospel is more than just something you receive because it makes sense to you, because it's rationally sensible to you. If that's that's where you stop, then, then you don't know, you have not experienced the gospel. It's more than something that's just rational. Noah believed in God, but more than that, when God warned him of things not yet seen, When God warned him, he said that the world is corrupt. He actually uses the word corrupt three times in in that passage in Genesis 6. In that one verse, he uses the word three times. And he says, The world is corrupt. They've corrupted themselves. And he's going to end it, basically. He says, I'm going to end the violence. Noah let what God said define his reality. That's what it means to believe. You can believe in God, but if you haven't taken what God says and let that reinterpret and define your view of reality, you don't truly believe. That's what it means to plug our story into God's story. God said, there's a storm coming, Mr. Wayne. There's a storm coming, Mr. Noah. And Noah responded. For years, in the middle of nowhere, Iowa he's building an ark, a huge boat. And he's saying, this is going to save my life. The birds are chirping. The sky is blue. And everybody's kind of living as they want to live. And yet in the middle of Iowa, Noah is building what he's calling his salvation. He's letting what God says define his current reality. That's what he's doing. Now, why does he do that? Noah's saying, I will not be defined by what I see right now. I will not be defined by today's views of parenting. I will not be defined by today's views of money and savings. I will not be defined by today's views of sex. I will not be defined by today's views of spirituality. I will be defined by what God has said, by how God speaks. That's faith. To live in line with what you know. To live in line with what God has said. What defines you? If it's money that defines you, then life is about wealth accumulation, competition, power. If parenting is what's going to define you, then life is about having great children, perfect children. And you're going to be tough on your children. If your career is what defines you, then it's all about your position, your titles, and uh, your salary over other people's position and titles and salary. If you're struggling with bitterness and resentment, what you're saying is that, you know, I've been hurt and I've been wounded, so I'm going to withdraw or retaliate. It's going to be my preservation over other people. If you're going to let career or money or parenting or suffering define you, what you're really saying is you're going to live out the natural course of evil in the world it just perpetuates itself that's what you're doing and when the storms come when the real storms come in life you're going to sink because you've tried so hard and it hasn't satisfied or it hasn't saved you it hasn't helped to get rid of bitterness it hasn't helped you to feel like you've arrived that's what it does that's the storm And, uh, you know, that's what it means to live by sight. It says that Noah, when warned of things not yet seen, when we live by sight, that's how we're living. We're going to interpret the world inaccurately. But Noah was warned. There's a storm coming. And he obeyed. He let what God said define him. And so Noah and his family, in the text it says that he entered into the ark and Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7 kind of finishes up and it says that in so doing, he became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. He became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Now, that's, we're coming to the heart of Christianity here. We're coming to the heart of everything that the Bible says about what's wrong with the world and how God's going to save it. How do you find shelter from the storm? of life, the storm of God's judgment. The Bible says you can only receive it. You can't work to earn it. You can only get it. You can only you can't find it on your own. It has to be given to you. What's an heir? The basis of being an heir because it says Noah was an heir of righteousness. He lived a good life. He was a good man. What that means is that he looked at the world and he saw that the world didn't live right, and he lived right, but it said that he was an heir, the righteousness that he needed, he received. What is an heir? Somebody gets richer because of somebody else's wealth and that's given to you at the cost of their death through relationship. That's what it means to be an heir. That's what it means to be an heir. You receive something really that you didn't earn. Imagine two people. Here's a woman. She's smart enough to gain and accumulate a tremendous amount of wealth in her industry. You know, as a marketing executive, she's she's worked very hard and with her intelligence and her savviness, she's kind of trumped other people and kind of navigated politically and appropriately, and as a result, she's risen to tremendous power and accumulated a tremendous amount of wealth, and one day she passes away. So her children receive everything that she earned. How did they get rich? Through relationship. They got wealthy through relationship. And now they are every bit as wealthy as their mother once was. That's what it means to be an heir. And it says that Noah here became an heir of the righteousness that came by faith. He received the wealth of, all the, of being made right with God. He was approved by God, but he received that. He, he received that like an heir. And so he's every bit as righteous as the person who gave him the righteousness. The gospel teaches that you receive something You are an heir first through relationship. Faith in Christ gives us righteousness. It comes to you first. You have to believe that. Do you really believe that? Do you believe that today? That your faith, your righteousness was given to you at the cost of someone else? That you're every bit as loved and and you're every bit as as wealthy and every bit as, as adored as Jesus once was on earth by God his Father? Do you really believe that? You have to hide in that. It says that Noah hid in the ark. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God. Imagine you go and you see a doctor. And a doctor tells you, you know what, you're going to need surgery. Something is gravely wrong with you, and you're going to need surgery. And, um, you, know, uh, you know, he says, you know, I'm going to remove this tumor from out of your body. And once I do, it's going to be fine. And you say, I trust you. You're the doctor. You're the expert. I'm going to trust you. And so you go to the operating table, and as soon as you enter into the operating table or operating room, what do you see? You see everything is sterile. You smell the hospital. You know that smell that you smell when you walk into an operating room? You see the straps on the bed, and you're like, wait a second. Why why are there straps? You see the tools on the side kind of laid out, and then you realize why there are straps on the table. You see that there's a, a gas mask, and they put it on you. And you're thinking, you start, your mind starts to, t- to speak to you and say, wait a second, the doctor said this is going to be fine, but it looks like a lot of pain, a lot of pain I'm going to have to endure And for God to remove this, or for the doctor to remove this. So the table, the straps, the needles, the smell, the number of people hovering around you, and what does it do? You start to live by sight, by what you see. You say, Oh, this is this is horrible. I'm deathly afraid of these things. But you know you need it. And you're trusting the doctor. And you're putting your life into his hands, and you know that it's gonna be a bit painful at times, but in the end, you're gonna be saved. You listen to the doctor, he tells you what you're gonna need. You know, imagine you don't want to lose your boyfriend because he's everything to you. He's everything to you. And so you invest in this relationship. You invest in this relationship heavily, even with your purity. And you're investing and you're investing. You're giving him your time. You're giving him your finances and your emotional purity as well. And one day, he breaks up with you. Everything falls apart. Incredibly painful. It feels like death. It feels like death. And, uh, you know, why is this happening to you? You know, you talk to this person every day. You only enjoyed life when you were with this person in your life, and now he's gone. You no longer feel alive. You no longer feel like you're living. Why? It's because you're living by sight. When you've put everything, your entire emotional capital, into your wealth and you lose it, you're living by sight. That feeling, that feeling like death, or in your career, or in your parenting, when your children are not living well, They're not living the way you hoped and prayed that they would live all your life. You put all your, you invested your emotional capital, your spiritual capital to that. It's like driving a two-ton car over a bridge that can only hold one ton and everything falls down because your foundation, everything that you've trusted in is flawed, is broken. The doctor says, I'm removing these things. It's going to be painful, but you have to trust there is a flood coming. There is a storm coming. Why the flood? We're going to close with this. Why the flood? There are two reasons. One, it's a fresh start. God's going to end the violence, he says. Verses 11 to 12. God says the world is corrupted. These people have corrupted themselves. Literally, the actual Hebrew, it says that they've destroyed themselves. They are in the process of destroying themselves, and they've already destroyed themselves. So what am I going to do? I'm just going to finish. I'm going to just destroy them. I'm going to let it go. They were already destroying themselves, so I'm going to end this course, this cycle of self-destruction. That's what he's saying. So the meaning of the flood is that the same water that's going to sink everybody else who's destroying themselves is actually going to lift up the ark and save the people who are in it. The very waters of judgment are actually the waters of salvation for the people who are in the ark. The same judgment that's sinking the unbelieving, those who don't have faith, are actually saving, uplifting those who do. The second thing is it shows us that God is still committed to our world. He says he's going to renew it. He's going to purify it. He's committed to the renewal of our world, all the brokenness. You don't believe in divine justice? You don't believe in the divine judgment? It's going to create tremendous problems for you. But here in the Bible, it says that God is committed to justice. He's committed to the renewal and the purification of the world. And as a result, through the judgment, there comes grace. Now, how complete was his grace? It wasn't that complete. Why do we know that? Because as soon as the floodwaters recede, Noah comes out of the ark, and what happens? He sins. He sins. He sins, and he breaks up his entire, his family is just utterly broken in the process. He's completely, he gets drunk, and he screws up his family. So we know that God didn't intend the flood to end sin once for all. This is a foreshadowing, a pattern of how God will bring about redemption. And so throughout the Bible, we see many storms. You know, for instance, Jonah. Jonah's on a boat. What happens? A storm comes, and Jonah braves a storm. He throws himself into the storm. He's swallowed up by a fish, and what happens? He cries out in the belly of the fish, and he says, all your waves and your billows have swept over me, and I have been cast out of your presence. Centuries later, in John chapter 6, you see another storm, and you see Jesus, and he's walking on the water. He's walking on the water. He commands the storm. Centuries later, you see Jesus. He says, be still, and the storm just dies down. How is he able to do that? And Jesus explains. He says, a greater one than Jonah has arrived. A greater one than Jonah is here. And what he means is this. A greater storm is coming, one that you cannot endure, one that you cannot brave. This is the ultimate storm of God's wrath. These physical storms, I'm going to quiet. I'm going to still them. I'm going to walk on water. I'm going to command it. But this greater storm, I'm going to sink to the bottom of this storm. I'm going to sink to the bottom of it. Jesus says, all of God's wrath will come on us one day like a storm. But I will be the one to brave it. And all the waves of his wrath, all the billows of his wrath will sweep over me. And I will be cast out of his presence. That's what he says. On the cross, what do you see? Another storm. A real storm. The skies grow dark. There is an earthquake. The holy temple curtain tears from top to bottom. A tremendous storm. A huge storm comes. And in the, in, the, in the center of that storm, you see Christ on the cross. And he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is I am now braving at this moment the ultimate storm. All of God's wrath is now sweeping over me, and I am crushed to the bottom. I am, I've sunk to the bottom. I've been totally cast out of God's presence. Everything that the human race deserved, I am experiencing right now. And on the cross, he's crying out. Jesus had to die. Why? Because God is committed to justice. He says, I will bring about renewal through him. He is committed to justice. But on the cross, Jesus was willing to die. He was willing to die. What does that mean? God is also committed to his love. God is also committed to his love for a people. For his love for us, for his love for you and for me. So, folks, this, it's, it, what is God saying here? There's another storm coming. There's another storm coming. The flood is going to come. And in this flood, everyone will sink. Everyone's going to sink. The weight of our sin will take us all the way to the bottom. Who's going to survive the flood? Who will brave over these waves and billows? We know that only one person really could, and that was Jesus. He walks on the water. He walks in the storm. He walks on the water in the storm. He lived the perfect life, and yet, willingly, out of his grace, out of his love, he dies the perfect death to save us from our sins. And just like Noah hid in the ark, what are we called to do? We have to hide ourselves in Christ. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God. If your storm is losing, uh, losing that one relationship, Sex may be your arc. If your storm is the fear of losing security in life, then your bank account and your career is your arc. If your storm is the fear of losing approval, then being connected to the right people, the attractive people, that is your arc. If your storm is losing your reputation, then your good deeds, maybe even your marriage, maybe even having perfect children, that is your ark. If your storm is loneliness, then having a spouse, that is your ark. That could be your ark. Each of these things you're going to use to shut other people out. Each of these things you're going to use to save yourself. You're going to say, if I have these things, then I've arrived. Then I have favor. But if you hide, your, it's going to, if you hide in these things, it's going to destroy you ultimately. The evil will perpetuate itself. That's what it's going to lead to. But if you hide yourself in the perfect record of Christ, that he lived the life that we should live, and you see that through the justice he endured, he died the death that we should die, we will be lifted. The same judgment that will sink everyone else will uplift you. He is the ark, the cross, the wood. The wood was once a symbol of judgment. The ark was made of a certain type of wood. The cross is made of wood. It's a wooden cross. It was a symbol of judgment, and yet it's our salvation. Today, when sorrows come, get in the ark. Will you get in the ark? Will you hide in the gospel? When problems come and you're going to feel crushed when suffering comes, and we're all suffering in some way, shape, or form, will you hide in the ark? Will you hide in the ark so that in your suffering, we can trust ourselves. We can trust what God says. Let that determine our reality. Know that there is more, that God knows more. God knows the end of the story, and yet as we let that. And, and looking back at what, how, God, how faithful God has been through Jesus on the cross, will you let that lift you up? Depending on what degree you are in the gospel, when the flood comes and there is a storm coming, Depending on what degree you are in the gospel, that's how you will find perfect shelter in the storm. That's the degree of your shelter. How deeply you trust in the gospel to that, to that extent is how deeply you will, you will find shelter. You know that's the only thing that's going to keep us from falling apart. That's the only thing that can sustain you when the storms of the world come, when our suffering comes. Will you trust? Will you hide yourself in the ark? that is the gospel, that is Christ today. Let's pray.